many movie stars have changed their names. Jennifer Aniston was born Jennifer Anastasakis. Jamie Foxx is Eric Bishop. On his birth certificate, Michael Keaton was registered as Michael Douglas, and on Kirk Douglas's, you'll find the name Isser Danielovich. Whatever the reason behind those changes, let's consider Lucille Lesser. Surely, if ever a girl were given a name to grow up to be a silent movie star, it was Lucille Lesser. The geminating sounds of L and S make it not only easy to remember, but a name that rolls, to quote the bard, trippingly from the tongue. And even though Lucille was born in 1905 in San Antonio, Texas, by her late teens she had already made it all the way to Hollywood, where, through sheer determination, she landed herself a contract with MGM. But no sooner had she signed on the dotted line than the studio executives decided to ditch Lucille Lesser and rename her Joan Crawford. Now, to me, Joan Crawford could easily be a neighbour, or someone sitting next to me on the morning commute not some exotically named creature up there on the silver screen. Lucille Lesser, on the other hand, sounds like, well, perhaps that was the problem. It sounded too much like a stage name. So MGM traded the deluxe model down to a standard fit. I mentioned all that because in 1945, Joan Crawford won an Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance in the title role of Mildred Pierce. Adapted from James M. Cain's novel set in Depression-era Los Angeles, it is all about origins and transformations and appearances, and the thousand deceptions that some people go to in concealing their past, and maintaining the facade that they worked so hard to construct. Now, Cain's novel is often assigned to the hard-boiled crime tradition, but, out of respect to Cain, who disliked such labels, I'll say that the novel is a scathing commentary on both the American dream and the so-called family values that are said to go with it. Kane's novel begins with Mildred kicking her deadbeat husband Bert out of the house. Bert has been left unemployed by the 1929 Wall Street crash, and what is worse, he isn't even looking for work. But worst of all, Bert spends his time chasing other women. Mildred has been waitressing, and, seeing how the catering industry is run, she soon opens up her own restaurant. Forever wanting to provide greater opportunities for her two daughters, that restaurant quickly becomes a restaurant chain. But with Mildred tirelessly building her empire, her eldest daughter, Vida, grows disdainful of her. And the more Mildred works to provide, the greedier Vida becomes. Instead of poverty being the vicious circle, it is wealth that is presented as the merciless trap. See what I mean about an acidic critique of the American dream? She's tired out. She cried herself to sleep. Was it about her father? Yes. Is he going to marry Mrs. Peterhoff? I don't know. I do. I do know that you should be asleep. I've been thinking. What about? I heard you and Wally talking. Well. You could marry him if you wanted to. But I'm not in love with him. What if you married him? Maybe we could have a maid like we used to, and a limousine, and maybe a new house. I don't like this house, Mother. Neither do I, but that's no reason for me to marry a man I'm not in love with. Why not? With those themes, it is a wonder how Hollywood ever thought they could make it into a movie, especially during World War II. But Warner Brothers had secured the film rights when Knopf Publishers printed Kane's novel in 1941. 
It is widely believed the Warners took the rights to create a vehicle for their biggest star at the time, Betty Davis. And it is widely believed that Davis turned it down. But the truth is that Davis was never offered the part. Instead, producer Jerry Wald approached Rosalind Russell, but she said no. Then Wald considered Anne Sheridan. But waiting in the wings was Joan Crawford, who had recently landed on the Warner lot after her contract with MGM was not renewed. Crawford was coming off a series of box office disappointments, and she knew that one more would spell the end of her career. So she went after the role of Mildred Pierce with all the zeal of a great white shark. So eager was she that she even agreed to do a screen test, something that she hadn't had to do in over a decade. It went well, and learning that she had landed the role, Crawford sensed that this was the project that would put her back as a box office draw. Now, a short aside about box office attendances. Contrary to popular opinion, box office attendance did not peak during the Depression. On the contrary, they actually dipped. It was only with the coming of the Second World War that the studios saw a change in their fortunes. But what was most interesting was that with so many men off at the front, Hollywood targeted a predominantly female audience. This contributed to the rise in the 1940s of genres aimed at women, in particular the wives, girlfriends, daughters and mothers of men who were in service. Accordingly, the studios had their readers scouring not just novels, but newspapers and magazines for stories and articles they could adapt into what they uniformly called women's pictures. We lived on Carvalis Street where all the houses looked alike. Ours was number 1143. I was always in the kitchen. I felt as though I'd been born in a kitchen and lived there all my life, except for the few hours it took to get married. Is that you, Bert? Yeah, who else? I thought it might be Mrs. Whitley calling for a cake. Well, it isn't. I married Bert when I was 17. I never knew any other kind of life, just cooking and washing and having children. Two girls, Vida and Kay. With all that in mind, it should come as no surprise that Mildred Pierce is a fiercely loaded story. Addressing as it does, marriage, motherhood, entrepreneurial spirit, and above all, a family in deep, deep crisis. We're talking about divorce, infidelity, embezzlement, blackmail, teenage pregnancy, and incest. Kane's novel doesn't so much depict the American dream as repaint it as a nightmare. But once Warners got their hands on it, they knew that the story was so dark that they would have to significantly modify its content in order to get around the production code. They did so by dramatically altering the plot. Rather than maintaining the novel's linear melodrama, Randall McDougall's screenplay turned it into a murder mystery told in flashback. By making a murder mystery the plot's driving force, McDougall neatly positioned the police, the law and all its order as the story's moral centre. And that meant that pretty much any wrongs could be depicted because they would not go unpunished. Under the swift direction of Michael Curtiz, the film opens with that murder. And while Mildred is being interrogated, she recites the events leading up to the fatal shooting of Monty Berrigan, her unfaithful second husband. With the assistance of cinematographer Ernest Haller, the darkness of the police station where Mildred is being interrogated stands in sharp contrast to the flashbacks that take place under the bright and cheery Californian sun. So even while Mildred recalls the tragic death of her younger and loving daughter Kay, every episode regarding the spoiled Vida comes with the polish of triumph over hardship. In other words, if we're paying attention, 
we can see that a lot of what Mildred is telling us is a lie. Or at least a deception designed to throw us off the scent as to the real identity of her husband's killer. But he didn't, he couldn't. He's too gentle and kind. Okay, he's kind and gentle. He's wonderful. But if he's so wonderful, Mrs. Berrigan, why did you divorce him? Neither Michael Curtiz nor Ernest Haller are names you would readily associate with film noir. But in this, their only collaboration, they absolutely nailed its manner and style. Time and again, they staged the scenes with strong perspectives that trapped the characters either by way of composition or restrictive shadows. It was in that way that they visualised the film's themes of transformation and appearance and truth and lies. Those dichotomies are perfectly encapsulated in a moment near the end of the film when, returning to her beach house, Mildred descends the spiral stairs and steps out of the shadows into a shaft of light. If you've never seen the film, it is worth waiting for that scene alone, for it contains one of the most unforgettable close-ups in Hollywood cinema. While in the movie Mildred Pierce was a self-sacrificing, protective and providing mother, Joan Crawford was far from that idealised image. As revealed by her adopted daughter, Christina, Crawford was a volatile alcoholic who punished even the slightest faults of her children with physical abuse. In her memoir, Mommy Dearest, Christina said that her mother would then insult those injuries by shamelessly parading her scrubbed up children before the media as a display of her immeasurable maternal affections. Now, I said that author James M. Cain did not like his novels to be described as hard-boiled crime stories, if only because it would lump him into the noir cycle that was better typified by the likes of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. One of the things that so typified the works of Chandler and Hammett was the very clear and looming presence of a femme fatale. Cain's novel contains no such figure. In Cain's world, everyone is tainted. But in the movie, the role of the femme fatale falls to Mildred's daughter, Vida. In fact, while Crawford won the Oscar and in so doing delivered her career-defining performance, for me, it was Anne Blythe as Vida who deserves all the kudos. Steering smoothly but strongly from sweet to sour and finally to vicious venom, Vida is the film's real standout. Which, if you think about it, only adds further tragic irony to Christina Crawford's childhood. But, Either way, as young, toxic temptresses go, Vida is right up there with the likes of Carmen Sternwood in The Big Sleep and Diane Tremaine in Angel Face. With this money, I can get away from you. Vida. From you and your chickens and your pies and your kitchens and everything that smells of grease. I can get away from this shack with its cheap furniture and this town and its dollar days and its women that wear uniforms and its men that wear overalls. Vida, I think I'm really seeing you for the first time in my life, and you're cheap and horrible. You think just because you made a little money you can get a new hairdo and some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't, because you'll never be anything but a common frump whose father lived over a grocery store and whose mother took in washing. With this money, I can get away from every rotten, stinking thing that makes me think of this place or you. Michael Curtiz's movie may have bent Kane's novel all out of shape, but it doesn't necessarily detract from the original incendiary material. In fact, Todd Haynes's multi-award-winning HBO miniseries from 2011 is a more faithful, complex and nuanced work. But Curtiz's version works wonderfully as well. 
All of which goes to show that when adapting a book for the screen, once the producer acquires the film rights, they have every right to do with it whatever they please.